what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. As an eating disorder recovery coach and holistic nutritionist, Lara Reeves Mufidi's mission is to increase awareness and educate the public around eating disorders and the journey to recovery. She entered the eating disorder community 20 years ago, and we're so excited to just crack open her story here, share all of her wonderful knowledge and experience um, on this very, very important and relevant topic, particularly for our audience of not only teen girls, but women of all ages, all shapes, all sizes. So, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be sitting down with you. Yeah, this just came together so beautifully. Laura is actually the wife of my um, my fitness trainer, um, but I've just heard, you know, indirectly about her story uh, to the point where I, with my own postpartum um, body image kind of issues resurfacing, um, I asked to reach out to her. And um, this connection just felt like such a natural progression to interviewing her for our podcast. So, so yeah, yeah. we're so excited to have you here. Couldn't be more relevant or perfect or, you know, a better transition for us into this conversation. So Ooh, awesome. I'm, I'm yeah. so excited to be here. Welcome back. That was a little clip from today's episode, which is a very special one, as it's filled to the brim with vulnerability and open-hearted discussions about some very difficult things. As a quick disclaimer, if you're triggered by discussions of addiction, substance abuse, eating disorders, or trauma, this may not be the episode for you. You can also visit our show notes for a recap of today's episode in addition to links for resources and references discussed. With that, let's jump right in. Yeah, so maybe before we dive in, what are you doing day-to-day? Sure. Yeah, so my day-to-day is I actually hold three uh, jobs right now. So um, I have um, uh, an at-home telehealth business where I'm a recovery coach and a meal coach um, specializing in eating disorder recovery. Um, I see clients from all over uh, the United States. I'm open to see clients all over this nation. Um, But um, yeah, from Monday until Thursday, I'm pretty much at home um, taking calls and doing um, online Zoom sessions, counseling sessions, or sitting down and actually having meals um, with my clientele. And and I don't just focus on eating disorders. I also focus on some trauma counseling and drug and alcohol counseling as well. And then Thursday and Friday, I go into um, a young adult um, residential treatment facility here in Southern California. And I work as a meal coach specialist focusing on eating disorders um, during the, that portion of the week. So 
Yeah, that's what my life looks like. And then my third job for funsies, I like to do hair. That was my first career. So, you know, why not just throw in, you know, two times a month, I'll just, you know, pull out the whole uh, hairdressing apron and, and be a hairstylist. A little creative outlet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I also heard recently that your parents are in town. So maybe we can um, start with talking a little bit about your childhood life, your parents, your upbringing. Sure. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Southern California. My parents met at Disneyland. They both were working at Disneyland. My mom worked in the bank and my dad was a security guard because so you can imagine how they cross paths. (laughs) Um, And they met and fell in love and had my brother and I. Uh, my brother and I had a like a normal Orange County upbringing. We're both water babies. My brother went the water polo route and I went the swimming route. And, um, you know, I come from a very loving, intact family. My parents are still madly in love. Like you mentioned, they're visiting my husband and I now. Um, they're, they're still, you know, they're that older couple that hold hands and wipe each other's face. So I grew, I grew up with good role models. So, um, to say, you know, people with the stigma that people have broken homes only have trauma or go through hard times wasn't my case. Um, I um, had a very loving and and hardworking in my life, went to every swim meet, went to every parent conference type of family. Um, so in my childhood, as far as family was fantastic. Like I would repeat all of that again. What about you and your brother? Are you guys close in age or I think I think he's older than you, right? He's older than me. My brother's six years. He'd say five, but he's like five and like eight months, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's about six years older than me. Um, and he, my brother's just, we're different personalities where he's um, high achieving and a high achiever. He's a colonel in the Air Force now. Um, you know, straight A student, varsity, everything, went to the Air Force Academy. And I was like the child that was into, you know, the arts and athletics and went to treatment twice, you know, like, um, we just were a little bit different as far as who we were as people. But we both had something in common, which was the athletics. And um, I think that that's what my my parents kind of brought to the table. We're like um, an athletic family. And so like my brother went to water polo. I went to swimming. And that's where I remember the most, besides having this great, wonderful family. Um, I remember being um, most of my childhood being on pool decks here in Southern California and growing up as a swimmer and having that be my world and my motivation more so than let's say school. So that was that was really kind of my upbringing is just really being a swimmer and trying to achieve greatness, which is, at, for me was like um, by by eight, I was like, I'm going to the Olympics and that's that's Aww. my thing in life. So a lot of drive for it for a young person, for sure. Mm-hmm. 
When you say you and your brother were water babies, were both of you, you just knew swimming was it for you, water polo was it for him, or did you guys, did your parents kind of guide you to those sports? Gosh, what a great question. I don't know if my brother and I ever thought of that. We had a pool in our backyard, so I think my parents drown-proofed us at a pretty early time. <laughs> um, yeah, my brother started competitive. This is how the story goes. My brother, being older, started competitively swimming. And by four, I started jumping in the pool at his swim meets and trying tried to like swim the races with them. Mm -hmm. So by four or five, I was on the swim team, um, competitively swimming, probably disqualifying quite a bit, but <laughs> swimming by four or five. I honestly would have loved to see that. That's such a cute age. Plus, like, you're just kind of going for it because at that age, you're just doing whatever brings you joy. So yeah, and also like what an older sibling is doing. I can imagine that like, especially if you were successful at that already, you know, coming, I feel like particularly in that age of being a younger sibling, it's just like, whatever your older sibling does, you just adore them. Yeah. And, you know, that's the way because it's the only way you really know. Bingo. Anything my brother was doing, I was like, I want to do that. And I want to be better than that. We know you got to remember this was the 80s. I'm going to be 40 this year. And I was born in 81. So it was really kind of during that dawn of girl, the first real big dawn of girl power and girls can yeah. be anything. So, you know, I really believed I could be as good of him, as good as him, if not better, you know, so I believed it. I wanted it. Um, my parents reinforced it. So I was going to go after it. Was there competitiveness then between the both of you? There still is. Absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. Swimming is obviously such a physical sport. It's so demanding. It's all mm -hmm. about speed. Um, so I can imagine there was a lot of just pressure internally, but also externally, you know, in your competitions. Um, did you feel that kind of peak at, at any specific age? Can you talk a little bit about um, just any pressures of swimming? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's... It's interesting. It's swimming's definitely one of those sports. And I don't think it um, is just this way for females and then not for males. I think it's both um, for both the sexes that pushes you physically and emotionally, whether you're um, a female or a male, but also like your body has to physically change and mold into that swimmer body. And what I mean by that, like a female, um, it's kind of like gymnastics in the, in the fact that where a female doesn't necessarily need the curves, but the male needs to put on that muscle mass, you know? So equally there's, there's, um, some pressure on both sides to get your body to a certain point for, um, it's like a machine to get that machine to really rev up and do what you need to do. And and I think um, in Southern California, we're a highly competitive area for this sport. We have a lot of Olympians come out of this sport um, in Southern California. And the when I was a teenager, my best friend was Amanda Beard. She's a five-time Olympian. She went to the Olympics at 14. She comes from Irvine, California. She's an amazing girl. 
Um, I can't say that we necessarily growing up, we started swimming together. There was a big group of girls when we were swimming together where we felt the pressure to manipulate our body in a certain way. But when we hit puberty, we definitely felt, felt that pressure like, ooh, that little girl body was probably serving us a little bit better. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point that when you start something like that before you hit puberty and then you go through puberty as, as a young person, it's must be just confusing or frustrating to feel like my body was serving me one way and then Mm -hmm. things out of my control have changed and I have to change my approach. I kind of went through something similar um, with ballet for sure, where I was like, okay, it's a little bit differently. And I have all these hormones on top of, on top of that. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit of, uh, just about that experience of like when puberty hit and what that was like for you while swimming? I had a couple things happen to me during that 14, 15 year old year-ish where it, where my, my puberty period, all that ah, happened. Um, I lost my grandmother who was the, l- my everything, the person I looked up to and the person I wanted to be most in this world. And then I hit puberty and I, I was already at a point in my thought process where I was already manipulating food and Mm -hmm. trying to manipulate my body. Um, I wouldn't say I had disordered eating or an eating disorder, Um, but I was, had high anxiety, um, for many years at that point. So I was already very aware of what was going into my body and what type of, um, exercises I need to make the calories move or make my body move in a certain way. So with that said, when I hit puberty and my body started to change, and the food I was eating wasn't working the way I was used to it working because I was so already heightened to the idea. Like I knew exactly what was going in and I knew exactly how it was supposed to come out, you know, as far mm-hmm. as exercise. And so when my body shifted, it almost felt like a bit of a betrayal. And I hate, I hate saying that because our bodies do not betray us at all, especially when it comes into this beautiful thing that like, we call puberty, but that's what it felt like to me at this time. And then it got reinforced by a coach saying like, this is why you're swimming Uh low. This is what's going on. We need to put you at a diet. And, you know, to a 15 year old girl, you feel pretty beaten down at that point. Yeah. I can actually really relate to that. And I'm sure so many, like that resonates with so many people. Um, because I had a miscarriage earlier this year and I turned 30 not that long ago. And, you know, it's these little shifts that happen that, like you said, make you feel like your body's betraying you, especially when you are hyper aware of everything that's going in and what your body's doing for you every day. Like I've always been active. I've always worked out several days a week to balance out, you know, other anxieties in my life. And so hitting 30 and having the hormones change and then having a miscarriage and you're like, what? Like, this is all possible? Like, I have no control over this? Mm -hmm. So especially when you're young and you have, you know, it's that first step into adulthood. I feel like there's like a narrative kind of given to us 
that our, our bodies work in one kind of straight direction throughout our lives, even though you know you age. Like I had the same experience to an extent when I found out I had cancer. It was like, how could my body have mm-hmm. like failed me like this? Or like, I didn't even see it coming. Like that, that kind of shame around uh, like redirecting your anger towards your own body. I feel like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is in our society that like sets us up for that disappointment when anything kind of goes off the rails, right? Or, mm-hmm. or our bodies change or serve us differently. Can we backtrack a little bit just because you mentioned that you had this really like healthy, beautiful upbringing And I know that as you're describing your shift into puberty, you're talking about some of these habits that start being built up. Do you have things that are foundational in your life that in retrospect, you look back and you say, this is why it happened, or these are triggers for me, or or things like that that happened? Well, again, I mentioned that I'm 40 years old now, and I've done a lot of work on myself. I've done a lot of therapy. I've been to treatment twice. So I've I've evolved into who I am now. I've had that that ability to look back and 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 warmly like, you know look at that little girl and and kind of peek into kind of what happened. And, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I had an experience that, that kind of rocked my foundation, but to the point that I didn't know the, the capacity that it was going to change my life so much. I had a neighbor that I grew up with. Um, I had a, a family uh, that lived next door to me. One neighbor particularly um, sexually abused me and sexually abused, you know, her younger brother. And this kind of this kind of back and forth behavior went on for several years. And it was something that I knew was wrong and was shameful. And I was so embarrassed about it that I knew I couldn't tell my parents. And I knew I couldn't tell my brother. And I knew if I told any of my friends, like especially my swim friends, like I felt like I would be either kicked off the swim team or laughed at, or I just felt so icky about it. So I just never told anybody. And I, I almost like, it's so strange now when I, when I, I, cause I still seek a therapist when I talk about it now, it's almost like I chose to forget about it. I, I chose to bury it deep down. And I think my outlet for it was swimming and my way of numbing from it was okay this is how I can control it is Mm -hmm. um, by this is what I need to go faster. You know, you remember it's a child's thinking like, you know, I heard somewhere that carbs made you faster. So, you know, I carbo loaded quite often. And you remember this is the eighties. There was the war on fat, you know? So it was like carbo load, fat free, everything. And I was very much in tune with that, but Mm I was, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, and I, you know, I, those slim shake, uh, 
drinks in a in a tin can. I was like, I, I'd be like, I love these, you know. I don't, I, I didn't love those. It was just what I thought I needed to do. Yeah, my athletics be better and faster and more. And um, I thought, you know, now that I look at it, maybe that'd make me more lovable in the future. So um, those are kind of the things that I put in place for me to be safe. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's such an interesting um, point uh, about just like the, the reaction to this thing that felt out of your control and, you know, shame, something that you felt like you, you were hiding or kind of burying on your own as a really young person. Um, I've talked to Kishia about this before, but I think that some of my, um, you know, struggles with body image and kind of obsession throughout periods of my life with what I'm eating or not eating um, came after a accident with my older sister where I almost lost her. And I really didn't realize that that's when things started until, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of therapy and looking back and I was like, you know, that was kind of, that was something that felt very out of my control. Um, and that I had a lot of regret because we were like fighting when this accident happened. Um, but looking back, it's like, okay, this was my young brain's response to something that I was out of my control was to, okay, I'm going to control myself, you know, and be the best in dance. And I'm going to, you know, do this, you know, the similar things. I think at, when I was a kid, it was like, I read in a magazine that like Jennifer Aniston was drinking hot cocoa all the time. And like the cocoa was like making her skinny. And so I got obsessed with like hot cocoa and it's just these stupid things. But as a kid, that, that struggle for like, I'm going to control this somehow, mm -hmm. um, you know, it feels very like A to B, like the solution, mm -hmm. whatever you really aren't able to, um, it becomes the simple thing yeah. when your life feels uncontrollable or your feelings feel uncontrollable. And at that, I think especially at that time in your life, your emotions are so, um, for lack of a better word, immature, just because your understanding of the world is still so naive. So your ability to self-regulate, I think, depends so much more on creating these very short, easy building blocks. And unfortunately, like, I mean, I can relate to that so much. It's like whenever things were hitting the fan, the only way to control it was with these little things that you could modify, whether or not it was healthy or conducive to growth and you know, all of those things. So, mm -hmm. And when, when I work with um, adolescents now, mm -hmm. what I notice is really what they love to hear is great job. I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. so I think we've, when we're younger, we're looking for that type of affirmation. So that's where the mind goes. If I do this, then the person I love is going to be proud of me. But it's just so simple at that age. Mm -hmm. you know, that striving to be is kind of the connector that, that really the mind can make at that, at that point in your life. If I strive to do this, then the one I love is going to be proud of me. Mm -hmm. When you were starting to kind of develop disordered eating what was like the first um like pattern in your behavior that emerged when it really started feeling like an actual disorder yeah um well so 
You know, I I really jumped off into the deep end real quick. Once my my coach pulled me out um, in front of my peers and let let me hear it, <laughs> I immediately went to binging and purging. I mean, I, I definitely, there was no gray area after that. The gray area was the years building up to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think, and this is just my opinion, I think some of us have more black or white thinking than others. And um, I, I think that I was one of those people. In fact, I still am after years of therapy, you know, um, and, and my thinking went to, I've got to get the weight off fast now. So I um, went to binging and purging. And again, right away, I feel like it consumed me as far as being obsessed with it. So much so that I could no longer swim, like the obsession to, to get everything out, um, took over everything. It took over, you know, I was very close with the girls I swam with. They were my best friends, my family, and I wanted nothing. I wanted to isolate from everybody, even my own, my own parents, my, my, I gave up swimming for it. You know, I just isolated, um, pretty quickly within months once I started bulimia. And that's, that's one of the signs of someone with a, with an eating disorder, the isolation happens pretty quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about that portion of your journey? Like not the bulimia portion so much, but like how long did this go on for and what did it take for you to say, this is a real problem? Well, there's sections of that journey for me. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't get, be completely free from my eating disorder until I was 33. Wow. I, I definitely have sections of it. Um, so at 15, I started with the bulimia. By 17, I was fully anorexic and rarely using the bulimia. Um, I could barely, barely like make it to school at that point. It was my senior year in high school. Um, I barely graduated high school. And then immediately after high school, I, I went on a, um, a graduation trip with my family that I was very malnourished and hallucinating and falling down. And my, my father had to carry me around um, like a little baby. And immediately after that trip, I went into uh, treatment for anorexia and bulimia. And after that, that's when I was 18. I was in there for six months. I was hospitalized for six months. Um, after that treatment, I would have some freedom for four years um, until I was about 22. And, um, and then I relapsed on my bulimia again. Hmm. And then I would be, you know, from from about 26 until I was 33, I was I was um, back in my eating disorder for quite a bit of time. Was your with that trip? Was that the first time your parents really understood that you were going through this? Was that the first time it was like exposed in your family? It no, my parents found out I had an eating disorder. Um, 
when I quit swimming, there, there, there definitely was like, Hey, what's going on? You know, mm-hmm. cause it was my love. It was my life. It was everything I wanted. And my parents were very concerned that some, they honestly, they thought I was doing drugs or something like something radical had to be going mm-hmm. on. Um, but you know, they couldn't find anything. And so it wasn't until months later that I think I was doing a cry for help. And um, months later, I had left a substance. I'm not going to say what it is, but I had left a substance out that was assisting me. Um, mm-hmm. and my mom found it. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I want to go into um, your like the actual hospital treatment that you started with. But before we do that, um, I'd love to, I mean, now that you're on the other end in a sense, and you know, you're helping people who have dealt with all different types of eating disorders. Do you notice any like trends or kind of uh, mindsets that distinguish someone from being say like anorexic versus bulimic? Like, are there certain like um, types of anxiety or depression or like just states of being where one person would be more prone to being one, more one way than the other? Because I personally, I, I feel like I was never diagnosed, but mm-hmm. uh, was more like uh, looking back at photos. I'm like, I look anorexic during those like late teen years, but never once even like thought about bulimic tendencies. So I'm just so curious about, um, I don't know, just from your end in treatment, are there any patterns or do, are the two usually kind of hand in hand? What does that look like? Well, there's definitely a, a, a di- differences between the two. I think a lot of the times we live in today's society, we have the distinction between disordered eating and eating disorders, where eating disorders are on the medical side. They are an illness. You know, eating disorders are an illness. They are um, physically and they're a physical and psychiatric illness where disordered eating isn't on the medical side. You know, there's some emotional stuff going on and some numbing out, but it's not on the like medical side of things quite yet. It doesn't mean it won't go there, but it it, it hasn't reached that point yet. Mm-hmm. Um, with anorexia, I can't say you pinpoint different personality who would have what. You know, even with anorexia nervosa, bulimia, and um, binge eating disorder, all three disorders, one common trait is perfectionism and overachieving. Um, because a lot of eating disorders have that sense, that false hope of control. You know, so perfectionism runs very deep in in most eating disorders, although the traits of the eating disorders uh, might be slightly different. Um, some traits might be spot on. So I, I can't necessarily speak into like personality traits that fit certain eating disorders. I, I What I can say and what I personally see is certain traumas sometimes do. What's difference between somebody who's restricting food and someone who's anorexic is someone who's restricting food is still obsessed with calorie intake and weighing themselves 
Um, the obsession of that is still real, but the anorexic is going to take it to a harmful place mm. you know, where the fear consumes them. The fear of eating is, is worse than maybe someone who has a fear of flying, you know, has a fear of death. You know, the fear of eating absolutely is the biggest fear of their life. You know, the fear of gaining weight, this isn't it. They're not eating disorders aren't things people choose to have. They're actual psychiatric like fears, you know. So so you've got to kind of consider that where bulimia is the, um, you know, where they eat something and they get rid of it. Um, again, they're still going to have that same quality of like fear of gaining weight, obsessed with calories. Um, but, you know, they they just when they eat something, they don't keep it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you were in treatment twice during this time in your life. And so you talk about the first time you went in after that family vacation. And then I think the second time you said was after your period of time in adulthood. I think for some of our listeners, they might hear that and think, okay, so it wasn't successful. But can you turn that around and maybe share a little bit about your experiences going into treatment and what was meaningful for you and what you took away from those experiences? I don't think that it wasn't successful. Um, when I was a teenager and went into treatment, it was a life or death matter. Mm -hmm. And I still use the skills and tools that um, I learned in that center today. Um, I actually use them in my practice all the time. So I definitely think I got a lot out of it. However, when I went to treatment, um, here's the difference. When I went to treatment in the 90s versus going to treatment in, you know, the mid 2000s and whatevers, um, eating disorders at the time were still under that, you know, psychiatric floor and, and that ideal where, where they still are now, but the aftercare um, isn't what it is today where, um, you know, we now have this aftercare um, because we know more about eating disorders now. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time we knew very little. I mean, even still, like we're still learning about eating disorders. Like eating disorders really didn't start getting talked about until the 70s and start being researched until the 80s and 90s. So, you know, it's really our research is quite new. So we kind of have to give give that a little bit of a, a break um, where if you go into treatment now for an eating disorder, you're going to have a huge treatment team after you leave treatment. And that can that can last for a couple years. And that's what I have a career on. You know, people mm -hmm. see me after they've gone to treatment and IOP programs and and stuff like that. And then, you know, some, some clients like to do like um, a 12-step program, which is Eating Disorders Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous or Anorexic Bulimics Anonymous. 
So we have these other wonderful tools available now, whereas back in the 90s, we, you know, anorexic and bulimics didn't necessarily have these or uh, meta. We didn't have meta accessible to us, you know, so we have these other incredible resources um, at our fingertips. And, and, I, and one other part of my story that, that's different is that when I went into treatment this last time, I wasn't just suffering from an eating disorder. I also was suffering from alcoholism because what I discovered with myself was I didn't start drinking until I was 24 because I was just wasn't that interested in alcohol. When my friends were drinking at 21, I thought, okay, good for you, but I'm still a little bit afraid of calories and I just kind of just want to focus on my recovery still. That was still is my main focus. But once I started drinking, and there's not a ton of research behind this, co-occurring addiction is real. You know, mm-hmm. some of us get it and some of us don't. And I have co-occurring addiction. I, you know, once I started drinking, I couldn't stop, you know, like so I also had the allergy to to alcohol and I didn't know that, you know, so it was like, it wasn't like I, I drank like a lady ever. I automatic, once I drank, I was an alcoholic and then, you know, I, I relapsed on my eating disorder right away. I mean, it was really that quick, just like how I picked up my bulimia that quick. I picked up alcoholism that quick and I couldn't control it for six years. Mm-hmm. Wow. How were the two um, treatments different? Because I know the first one you said was was hospital treatment mm. um, for six months, right? Can you uh, explain kind of like the uh, duration and sort of like what, what, what were the changes that were um, put into place for you for each treatment? Well, I was fortunate enough when I went into treatment um, at 33, I had a wonderful, you know, a wonderful eating disorder treatment team that I was still working with from when I was 15. I still had my nutritionist intact and I still had my therapist intact and I still had my psychiatrist. So they were on it. You know, once I relapsed in my bulimia, they were on top of it and they were trying to help me put those pieces back together. They just couldn't help the alcoholism. So when I went into treatment, I went in really into treatment for my alcoholism and they helped me on the outside with the bulimia. So essentially my sobriety date for alcoholism is the same, same recovery date as I have for my eating disorder. They all kind of match each other. So I didn't necessarily go in for dual diagnosis, like and the treatment offered it they were not equipped to handle someone like me. So I had to take it into my own hands with my own treatment team. But what that Mm -hmm. did that for me was planning three meals a day, two snacks, and lots of 12 step meetings. I mean, that's amazing that you were able to keep the same exact team because I think, I mean, just from growing up, my dad was in Alcoholics Anonymous, he's been clean and sober for over 30 years from drugs and alcohol. So I am no stranger to like, we'd go to the AA meetings with him and we'd be the kids Woo! playing. The playground. But, um, but one of the things is like, 
you go and I, you know, I can so relate to the perfectionism. I know my dad says he can all the time. One of those things is like, let's take a quick break for a note from our sponsors. So the world is going back to normal, which means the days of work from home and filtered Zoom calls are sadly and not so sadly coming to an end. If you're anything like me, I've spent the last year and a half letting my skin breathe because I haven't had to put makeup on or rush into the office. And now I'm coming to the point where I'm getting ready to layer it back on. I want all of the eyeshadow, foundation, and healthy glow for this summer. The difference is I want to know exactly what's in my products and exactly what's going on my skin. So I am super excited to share with you all Kinder Beauty Box. It is a beauty box like no other. Kinder Beauty Box is founded on principles of clean beauty. No parabens, sulfates, EDTAs, or toxins. Their products are 100% vegan and cruelty-free. They've never been tested on animals. And this is something I love. A portion of their sales go toward like-minded charities every single month. Kinder combines the greatest products of anything you could imagine from hair to skin, nails, lipstick, eyeshadow, you name it. They all follow the principles of clean vegan beauty. This month's box has some of my favorite brands in it from Pacifica and OC, and I'm just, I can't wait to get mine in the mail. We're really excited to share that Kinder is offering our listeners 40% off. That's right. You heard me correctly, 40% off just by using code Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T. All you have to do is head to kinderbeauty.com, K-I-N-D-E-R. B-E-A-U-T-Y dot com. Select your box. Subscribe. You will not regret it. You're going to get some gems this month. Now let's get back to the conversation. To find the right people for you at the right time is so important. And there's just like, there is that sense of, you know, battling with yourself with the cognitive dissonance where you're like, okay, am I being my own worst enemy or am I doing right by myself for this journey, for this recovery? It's so interesting and cool that you were able to work with the same team and they knew you and, you know, were really able to be in your corner for that, that section of this. I think, I really think that that hat needs to be tipped to my parents. You know, if it weren't, for my intact family, for that family that compassionately loved me through every step of the way without knowing my trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents didn't know my trauma until I got sober. So that mm-hmm. was 33. They never, they never knew why I had an eating disorder in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, so they went through this journey with me the entire time thinking it was them, which I think I want to speak to the parents a little bit on this one, like eating disorders and, and, and addiction aren't, aren't, it's a family disease, but it's not a family issue. You know, sometimes we've got to work through it as a family with love and compassion and discernment and detachment, but it doesn't mean all the blame goes on the family. That's not, it's, definitely wasn't my family's truth and working in treatment. It's not the truth that I see in treatment. A lot of the times, a lot of the times the adolescent or 
um, the young adult has that inside, you know, shame or guilt they're trying to tackle on their own and it comes out sideways on the parent. Yeah, I I mean, thank you for saying that because that's got to be really, I mean, that's got to be really rough and that was probably so hard on your parents also not having that sense of control or un- full understanding of what you were going through, you being somebody that they love and support and wanted nothing um, but the best for. I also think it's really commendable and I think it's worth pointing out that regardless of how many times you went into treatment, who your team was, the fact that your parents were so supportive, it's very significant, I think, to point out that you were the one that ultimately had to do the work. Thank you. Thank you. I had a um, a mentor tell me a long time ago that if we allow things to happen to us, that's where resentment festers and, and fear gets stuck. But if we allow things to move through us, that's where we learn to be aware and have this openness about us and we learn, right? So mm-hmm. I've, I've just gone through many years now, just letting things move through me instead of letting them be attached to me. And I think that's a good mantra to have, like, let let it move through you. Even if it's trauma, let it move through you instead of be a part of you. It's such a, like, a powerful statement. Um, when you were starting like real treatment, did you, was there, I mean, even though you knew it was medically necessary, you know, in the first instance, was there still some part of you that was resisting the treatment? I'm, I'm smiling like really big. I love talking about the, um, I want to call it the aha moment. And, and I think today with a little bit of, um, spirituality in my life. I would call it a a God shot. Um, But I mentioned that vacation. My parents, my mom loves ancient, ancient everything. And so we went to Greece and Israel and Egypt. And um, I happened to be, I was not practicing anything at the time. I, um, and, and wasn't for years but I happened to be in Israel at the time. And I was, like I said, I was passing out. My dad had to carry me from these beautiful like monuments, like carry me around like a baby because I was just passing out because I wouldn't eat, you know? And I I actually remember my mom gave me a Coke light. Um, If anybody's ever traveled to Europe or or anything, um, they have different Diet Coke in those areas and it tastes different. And I remember freaking out thinking my mom put sugar in my diet Coke. And so I wouldn't even drink diet Coke or water. And so I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And we were in um, Israel at the time. And I remember touching this stone. Um, we were on a, um, a tour and I remember touching this stone and I just remember this like warm, feeling come over me. And I just heard this voice that said, live. And that was kind of that, like, okay, it's okay. I need to go to treatment because on that trip, I turned 18. So now it was my decision. So it was my vision to go into treatment. And that, 
that helped as well. I also, this is interesting. Um, I had these two young gentlemen who I thought were courting me this entire trip. I thought like, oh, they're totally into me. But they kept asking me to go to Friends of Bill's meetings. And I was like, I don't know who this friend is. You know, I'm like 17, about to be 18. I'm like, I don't, I don't know who this friend is. I don't want to know who your friend is. <laughs> I probably look like a drug addict, you know. I was like, no, no, thank you. I honestly thought they were hitting up on me, but they were trying to 12-step me and get me to a meeting. So a lot of God shots on that trip. That's actually so cool that you were in such a spiritual Mecca and that this is where this is happening to you. Mm -hmm. I'm happy it did. Um, And I'm only laughing because, of course, for anyone who doesn't know, Friend of Bill, like you said, is just sort of like a, um, you know, it's a very low key way of saying, like, let's go to an AA meeting together. And um, yes, yes. That's great. I don't know who your friend is, but stop it. <laughs> Leave me alone, Bill. <laughs> yeah. um, that's so great. Can we pivot a little bit, just a little bit, and start looking toward how you decided that this is the path you wanted to take professionally as a career? And what are, you know, what I'm really interested in with these treatment programs, and I I actually have so many questions and hopefully we'll be able to get to them, but what did you take with you from your experiences in treatment, like whether they were tangible things like making lists or journaling or if you had specific, you know, habits or or things set up for yourself that were really um, big portions of your success story, like Tell us a little bit about how you took those lessons and transitioned from Laura, the, you know, survivor of this, the champion of this, into Laura, the coach and the the mentor and the leader. Yeah. Um, so my first time around, um, I really took away the the journaling skills, the you use a lot of art therapy sometimes in these centers. And as a as a young woman coming into their coming into my own at that time, I really took like the art therapy, the music therapy, um, the more creative therapy is really what I more took out of it the first time, um, and and used it, continued to use it. When I was in recovery the first time, I wrote almost daily um, in a journal. And then I was creating cookbooks. I learned, like, was cooking all the time and actually eating and enjoying and feeding. And um, I wanted to be, I wanted to go into nutrition. I wanted to feed others. You know, I'd, I really took this like away, this love of creating something and giving it back. So mm-hmm. kind of more what I took away the first time. Um, and that never left me. What actually happened was I went to college. I went to Saddleback 
And I started taking nutrition and music classes and radio classes. I really thought I wanted to be like a radio host or a nutritionist. And the nutrition, I wasn't ready. The nutrition um, classes were a little bit triggering for me. And I got a little bit scared and, and decided I'll go into hairdressing. So, and that was okay. You know, I was fine with that path. It was fun. And I still love to do hair to this day. But um, it, it did, like going into treatment kind of made me grow up a little bit and discover things I, I, I enjoyed doing other than swimming. Because at that time in my life, I thought I was a one-trick pony. I really mm. did. And I found out I was a lot better at, at, at things than just being an athlete. So that was very important to me. And in, in sh- such a short period of time, I learned to um, see that I was creative and I had a voice and, um, you know, started to use, and then I could use education, which I had never, ever used in my life. I'd always used my body to achieve. So it was um, learning that alone in treatment was highly, highly valuable for me. So moving on to the, to the next chapter I want to say, again, learning my self-worth and my value, my voice coming into my womanhood. I think when, and I see this with um, men and women that start using drugs or alcohol, I'm going to set the eating disorder to the side for a second. Drugs and alcohol rob you of they, they rob the soul, you know, it's very different than an eating disorder. They rob the soul and they make you a selfish person. And whether you, whether you want to be a selfish person or not, you're not trying to, but you become this selfish person that seems a little bit heartless and soulless. So when you come into a treatment center for alcoholism or drug addiction, you get your soul back. You learn that you're, you don't need to be self-centered or self-righteous or self-seeking. So you learn that being kind and compassionate and not doing things just to get, 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 get is, is much better for your well-being and your safety and some self-care is and feeling your feelings, you know, instead of numbing things out all the time. That's what you get to learn. You get your soul back. And and you learn that with, you know, um, cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR. And I really love the transformation I made. It went from being a woman that could have a career. I wasn't a low bottom drunk. You know, I had a career. I had my own place. I was, I had been married, you know, my parents weren't leaving me, but I was felt soulless. So what I got there was proud. I was really proud of myself and I loved myself again. So gosh, I want to be able to give that to people. I want to be part of that journey. And if I, deep down, when I prayed and meditated, I always wanted to go back and give back to people who were struggling with eating disorders and thought they'd never get out of it. Because I know that's just not the truth. You know, people with 
who struggle with disordered eating or eating disorders, there's, there's this thought that if I stop doing this, or if I stop counting the calories, or if I stop, if I stop weighing myself every day, then this is going to happen. That's part of the obsession. And it's learning to sit in the uncomfortable. It's learning to have someone next to you go, it's okay to be uncomfortable. I'm here with you. We're going to get through this where they come out the other side. You know, sometimes I use the example of like, you let your baby sleep with you until they're a certain age and then you put them in the room and they cry, 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 cry. But eventually they stop crying and learn to sleep in the room. It's the same thing with an obsession. You know, they're, you're going to cry. You're going to want to get on that scale or look at the back of that package and see how many calories is in it. But eventually you're going to get comfortable and feel your emotions and you're going to forget that you even cared about stepping on that scale. At Bridget, our fundamental belief is that community, especially community among women feeling safe and vulnerable with one another, is really where all sorts of healing and real development happens, right? Do you, do you think that that's just a, a central piece to, to recovery, period? I, I can only imagine that the people with whom you work, they probably hearing your own story and knowing that you've been through this, you know, and that you're alongside them rather than just someone that's saying like, I know what you're going through without having been there at all. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, that process of like opening up to people you're working with, relating to them? How central is that to um, working with someone? So that process is beautiful because it goes both ways. I don't only do this as, yes, I am a coach. It is part of my profession, but there's also a huge part of my life where I sponsor for fun and for free. You know, I've taken 30-something men or women through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or ABA, and that's for... That's on, that's on my free time. That's when I'm off the clock or on the weekend, you know. And here's why I think whether you're working with someone and letting them know your journey and helping them out with some therapy or counseling tools, you're giving them that safety to know you're a professional. And that's, that's comforting. That's amazing work that you're doing, okay? And... And I think that's helpful for them to know that you're a professional and that you're there to catch them if they fall. But on the other hand, it's also nice to be a professional that's been through it. However, when you're somebody who's had um, an addiction issue or been um, struggled with eating disorders, one of the first things I tell uh, somebody that your greatest gift in life is going to be talking about your eating disorder or your addiction, because that's how we give it away. That's how the 12 steps has managed to be what it is today. We're a big service community, but that's really, it's humanity, right? We're taught to serve one another and give each other love and community. And I love this quote, like self-esteem is built on esteemable acts. 
So when, when I can go, Hey, you know, Asha, let's talk about what you're going through and, and tell me, and let me see if I have any words of wisdom or tell you what's working for me in my life and see if that works out. Or let me just, let me just listen to you for half an hour as a friend. Then you walk away, hopefully getting something. And I walk away going, okay, you know, all those years I struggled was worth something. You know, I got to give back to a beautiful person and, you know, it's worth it. It makes my life meaningful and hopefully I got to help you and the world keeps turning around and round and round. And I think that's, that's reason enough to keep doing what I'm doing either professionally or, you know, non-professionally, just as, as a, someone who's recovered or a survivor, whatever it might be, you know, um, I just think it's it's part of hum, the human condition to just give back and love. It makes life so much purposeful when we can just be like, hey, let me give you some love or compassion, some time and give back to you. Put your burdens on me for a little bit. Yeah, just for like a little background, even when when Lara and I connected, um, I was actually surprised throughout pregnancy, I expected to be a lot more um uncomfortable with my body shape changing through pregnancy. I know a lot of women are. A lot of women say that it's the most wonderful, sexiest feeling time of their life. That didn't, felt like that in moments for me, but not the whole time. I was really sick in the beginning and really just uncomfortable in the end. The middle felt great, you know, um, but overall it was fine. I didn't feel like any of the old um, really restrictive eating patterns and anxieties had come up at all during pregnancy. And then suddenly I had this baby and postpartum hormones were happening. Um, I, I had a postpartum hemorrhaging situation that happened. But really, the, ironically, the thing that was triggering for me was this um, like really voracious breastfeeding appetite and just feeling like, oh, my gosh, who is this person and this amount of food that I'm eating? Like that, that ironically was what was so triggering to me. But I think that as an adult and having, having had gone through kind of coming out of that fog in a way in the past, I, you know, I reached out to, to Lara because I knew that like, okay, there's something weird going on here. Um, and maybe I can just connect with someone that's, that's been through this and has had, you know, had, has dealt with it, you know, in different times of her life. Um, and that was so powerful to even just talk to you on the phone, you know, and share our stories. And, um, you know, you gave me some great just suggestions for journaling and different different way things to reach inside myself to, um, you know, see this from different angles, right? For our younger listeners who might not have already gone through something before where they can recognize patterns or recognize things that they know aren't self-serving behaviors, right? How would you suggest like a young woman to like connect with someone else? And with that, let's take a quick break. Okay, you guys, if you're anything like me, you love getting a little surprise package in the mail. There are so many subscription boxes out there and it's hard to know which ones are really going to be bang for your buck, really, really good value. We don't take it lightly when we are going to promote one. This one is Kinder Beauty Box, 
One of the founders is one of the women that we've interviewed, uh, Daniela Monet. Knowing Daniela, Kinder is just full of products that are clean, cruelty-free, vegan, and just all the good stuff. Uh, you can go to kinderbeauty.com and they are offering our Bridget listeners a 40% off discount. So how does it work? You sign up for an, a subscription and each month you get $85 or more worth of vegan, cruelty-free, clean beauty products from top ethical and clean beauty brands. At least two of those products are full-size beauty products. And they're from all different categories of beauty, whether it's skincare, makeup, hair care, body, you name it. And the best thing is that part of their proceeds, they donate to wonderful charities. So head over to Kinder Beauty Box. Give yourself a little treat in the mailbox. I can't wait for mine to get here. Have fun. And we're back. Yeah. So I think... I think the younger community has more resources today, which is amazing, but then there's a lot of resources today and some of them can be great and some of them can be confusing. So when it comes to eating disorder resources, whether it be you want to help a friend or you're, you're scared about yourself and you want to take a little quiz. Um, or you're worried about, gosh, my coach just said this, and I'm not sure if that's okay. Um, I think NEDA, N-E-D-A, it's the nationaleatingdisorders.org, is the best website we have. Every question, even down to a parent toolkit, um, can be found on that website. It's very, very powerful. Um, there's even like seminars for coaches and trainers. There's seminars for educators to take. So we have more resources today, especially for friends trying to help friends. Um, one thing I, I, I like to tell parents and friends is, you know, get yourself educated. You know, get yourself it's one thing to think, gosh, my my sister or my friend's getting pretty thin. But during adolescence, sometimes that can happen. Um, and, and thinness doesn't always mean an eating disorder. You know, anorexia comes in every shape and size. And that's not fair to just say, gosh, she's thin. That's anorexia. You know, so. Or, gosh, she's not thin. There's nothing. There is no disordered eating happening. Right. right? That's right. Yeah. Bulimia looks very different. Binge eating disorder, one of the common um, mistakes is with, with binge eating disorders, pe people tend to think that you have to be overweight to suffer from that. And that's not true at all. So definitely um, keep an open mind and, and get yourself educated about eating disorders. Um, read up on them before you ever approach anybody. Um, if you you chose choose to approach someone um rehearse what to say and never do it with a judgmental or punishing tone you always want to speak with love and clarity and support um, and and slightly educated where you're coming in with more facts instead of you're doing this or you're blah, blah, blah. It's more of like, here are the facts that I'm presenting. Um, this is what 
I've been educated on and, and here's my support. And, and I'd like to add this. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say speak with love and clarity, meaning be clear, but be very loving in your approach. So, you know, there is a difference than just being very clear. You also want to be loving and um, remove all stigmas. And, and we talked a little bit about that, you know, yeah. eating disorders do not discriminate. They come in all shapes, all sizes, every gender, every sexuality. They, they, they don't discriminate. And unfortunately, what we're seeing right now with the pandemic coming to the end is that eating disorders have have risen you know the new statistics aren't quite out yet but we are going to see a spike um in all the all the eating disorder categories because of the isolation of of what happened in the last two years and um and isolation was able to be a little bit incognito you know people were able to kind of cover it up um kids were able to do school at home so um yeah little little bit of a spike in not just eating disorders but depression and other mental illnesses and addiction um so yeah the mental health world is going to get going to get rocked a little bit in the next next yeah. couple of years and i wonder if that you know kind of goes back to this the recurring theme of existing in a time right now where things were so chaotic, so out of everyone's control. There was such an influx of information and opinion and stigmatization, like not just amongst the the science itself, but like also politically, you know, it was just such a such a tumultuous time for everyone. Tell us a little bit what you think about that because I think for a lot of young girls, again, a, a lot of younger people that are going through this, especially for the first time. I think the idea of coming out of anything, especially for those who are perfectionists and are, you know, can be obsessive over things. I think that the journey to healing looks different for everybody, but is is also probably a lot more difficult for for people like that where the idea is that, okay, well, if I do this, then it should be fixed or it should be all better. When in reality, it's the spectrum kind of like grief or trauma or anything else, like things come in waves and, and surges. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is, it's an interesting um it's one of those assets. It's a human asset that's been overused. That's become negative. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. one of those things that can get things absolutely done, but underneath of it, it caused nothing but chaos. You know, whether it's causing the person who's being the perfectionist or causing the person who, or causing the people around the perfectionist, they're, they're being, um, you know, bombarded with, you know, like barking orders or whatever it might be. So I think we love we love talking about failure at Bridget because it's so foundational to learning and to growth. But for most of us, that entire period right before failure is so terrifying. 
for whatever reason, you know, whatever your reasons are, because you're anxious or you're afraid or there's fear involved, um, or if it's, you know, I won't be perfect at this. What do you tell yourself or people you love when that rears its ugly head? Like, how do you self-regulate when these things come back up for you? I, well, I have a, I feel like that's broken up into two. I self-regulate by a, a, um, I have a morning and afternoon practice for myself. And then, you know, the emergency practice of prayer and meditation, um, where I'm, I'm, I'm communing with my higher power or nature or the spiritual energy around me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm talking I mean even before this podcast I'm like please help me to help others you know there's constantly a communication with something other than myself because if I get caught in my brain it's messy you know mm-hmm. I can't go in my brain alone so I need to <laughs> I need to bring something bigger than me in and that's that's what I've learned so I start my day off with journaling and prayer and meditation. I end my day. I try to end my day with that, if not every day. Um, And then when I get anxiety, which I do, I am, I am that person in the grocery store that will like be, look like they're talking to themselves, but I'm really like praying or, or I, I do tapping um, all sorts of things to self soothe and self regulate as far as like allowing myself to fail though, I've learned to laugh at myself and actually repeat over and over. I allow you to feel today. I am a huge advocate of affirmations and I've got, I I think if you come into my office, I have a stack like like maybe three feet of affirmations that I've just memorized over the years. And there's a, there's a huge chapter on failure for myself and affirmations on the mirror. You know, I think the affirmations on the mirror just came off my mirror once I got married. So, and that was just so I I wasn't embarrassed, but you know, lots of affirmations and high-fiving myself and and just getting, because the subconscious is huge. Yeah. When we're younger, we're sponges. We need, we need to learn to either feed us ourselves with positive affirmation if we're not getting it in our outside world. Um, or, you know, start asking for it. Like, Hey mom, can you tell me that you're proud of me more? Or, Hey dad, can you give me more hugs and tell me like, you know, that I'm still your little girl, whatever you feel like you need to hear, don't be afraid to ask for it. That's so great. I actually, my dad now he adopted me when i was five my mom remarried and one of the things that i was just recently telling asha about in our um, founder interviews is that we had a tough time growing up because there was this period of time where he had to get to know me i had to get to know him like i said he's 30 years clean and sober so as he would say he came with a lot of isms and a lot of that um you know transcended and you know we all we all got them i mean you you become the people around you 
And one of the really beautiful things that I remind him about when he feels the guilt and shame of not being a perfect dad growing up was that I wouldn't be who I am now. Being able to have open, transparent conversations now has just, it's like leveled us up where I can really say my parents are my best friends because I know him so well, you know, as a full person. And so that's an amazing piece of advice for our listeners because it really, I think it does, it makes a huge difference to be able to sit with anyone in your life and say, while I'm giving this to you in this non-transactional relationship, but this, you know, relationship where things go back and forth and we give to each other, I also need to hear this and to listen to that part of you. I'm just now learning it. <laughs> well, I think it could honestly yeah. really be a, the person that you are relating to mm-hmm. because I think sometimes we go about life and we might not know we're not giving this person enough of something, but for someone to just look at you and be like, I love you. I want to continue this relationship. I need this from you. How clear, how, what, what a wonderful gift for someone to give you that it's like, oh my gosh, I, they've probably been wondering how to do that for you. And you've just given them that, yeah. that gift of how. So um, that's such a, such a wonderful um, tip. I also, I love your points about affirmations too, because I think it is such a wonderful reminder to sometimes look in the mirror and see what you're feeling, what you're going through. And just asking yourself the question, like, what would I say to my best friend going through this thing? You know, and that often that answer can be so different from what you would tell yourself, you know, and obviously that can inform the way that you're, you're uh, communicating with your best friends, you know, because there, there have been, Kishia and I have had this wonderful, you know, tapestry friendship but there have been so many moments where you know one of us slips up or had makes a mistake or whatever but we've communicated to the other that like you know that was the most endearing thing when you did this or your vulnerability in this moment was really inspiring to me you know or or the way that you handled this tough thing in your life you know you should be kind to yourself because you're incredible like being able to tell that to a friend but also affirming it to yourself when you're going through it. Yeah, I want to note what you're talking about is one of the best body positivity tips is looking at yourself in the mirror and and when you see something you don't like, you want to break yourself down for, you know, your thighs or your butt, you immediately turn it's called comp- compassionate communication you immediately turn and and think exactly what you would say to your best friend and you listen to the tone and and the tone of voice, how you speak to your best friend. Wow, I really love those jeans. Your legs look great. Your butt is super cute. Totally different than how you're speaking to yourself. And that's one of that's like one of the body positivity teachings that we we teach in um, coaching. I love that. Keisha, it makes me think of, we had an event with Mm -hmm. our teen girl and um, one of our friends, Brianne, was leading this meditation. At the end of the meditation, she had, and this was kind of at the end of a longer event, she had each girl, we were all kind of sitting in a circle, she had each girl look to their left and say something that they felt was true, honest, and good about the person, the next person. And we went around a whole circle. So everybody not only shared something, 
but they received something. And you could just see, I mean, people were so surprised at the things that someone else had so, I mean, over the course of just knowing them for a weekend, Mm -hmm. they had so really felt about that person enough to share it with them. And it was so magical. Um, And I think that 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 communication and being like, oh, wow, this person said it about me. Maybe I can say it about myself a little bit. It's such a good, shocking reminder of how to accept something that people see in you as a truth that you can believe about yourself. Because those are just so hard to come by when you're used to going, 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 or if you're the type of person that has any one of these many issues that so many people have. We live in a world where it's very easy to tear ourselves or tear others down. And we, if we can reframe it to love and then a list of gratitude behind it, it just changes the script. Yeah, it's so necessary. Amazing. Well, we're definitely going to link your information, those affirmations, also some of the resources that you talked about, websites um, where people can get educated for themselves and their loved ones. Um, in our show notes and on our website. But yeah, this has just been such um, such a refreshing experience talking with you. And I so, I, I mean, I know that it's going to really help people who listen. So we, at the end of each of our interview episodes, we like to kind of shake things up, ask five fun, lighthearted questions just to sort of start closing out this wonderful evening with you. So, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is your hype song? Uh, Dancing Queen by ABBA. Um, what is uh, your your greatest fear, if you have one? Sharks. Oh, my gosh. I'm so afraid of sharks and the ocean oh. and water. Like, no. Oh, no. For a swimmer, that is <laughs> sort of ironic. <laughs> I could make that's probably why I swam fast. Like I could envision sharks coming out of the deep end. Like it would freak me out. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you and Asha are never coming scuba diving with me? No. I'm terrified <laughs> of being under large bodies of water. Like you I could I've jumped out of a plane before, no problem. Yeah, but that, like being crazy. under the water in the dark, I'm like, mm, all right. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? Who's um let's see, I have to watch these with a mirror. He's gonna be so disappointed. Um speed? <laughs> speed. Oh my gosh, I'd get so much done. I'd be like the flash. okay I love that I was gonna say earlier when you mentioned you wanted to be like a radio DJ when you were older too I was like you have the perfect voice for that oh my god Howard Stern so bad (laughs) it's never it's never too late oh I I love it (laughs) all right number four is um do you have an embarrassing moment that you would like to share um, yes. So speaking of, I'll tie both my eating disorder and my alcoholism together. One time I was partying with a bunch of friends in Paso and I, I pooped a little in the baby pool. Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, gosh. It happened. It happened. <laughs> I thought I was farting, but I pooped. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves a good shark story, okay? (laughs) It's okay. 
What is the mantra or tactic you use or employ to get you through your moments of fear or anxiety? Oh my gosh. Always a hand on my heart. I love you and I trust you. I love you and I trust you just over and over. I love you and I trust you. When you look back on your teen self, what's one attribute that you had then that you maybe didn't see the value in, but you appreciate so much more now that you're an adult? Um, my, my ability to be absolutely silly and goofy. I thought it was weird back then. Now I absolutely love that about myself. I love it. I can see it. the joy and the love and that compassion just radiates off of you. Yes. Thank you for sharing your story, your work. Thank you for your work, period. Um, the good that you're doing. Uh, we appreciate it. The world appreciates it. Um, and we can't wait to continue to talk with you and, um, you know, just leverage your knowledge and experience for our community. So thank you, Lara. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness? <laughs>